This episode is brought to you by Thorn, and I have some incredible news for any of you that are in the military, first responder, or medical professions. In an effort to give back, Thorn is now offering you an ongoing 35% off each and every one of your purchases of their incredible nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is the official supplement of CrossFit, the UFC, the Mayo Clinic, the Human Performance Project, and multiple special operations organizations. I myself have used them for several years, and that is why I brought them on as a sponsor. Some of my favorite products they have are their Multivitamin Elite, their Whey Protein, the Super EPA, and then most recently, Cinequil. As a firefighter, a stuntman, and a martial artist, I've had my share of brain trauma and sleep deprivation, and Cinequil is their latest brain health supplement. Now, to qualify for the 35% off, Go to thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Click on sign in and then create a new account. You will see the opportunity to register as a first responder or member of military. When you click on that, it will take you through verification with GovX. You'll simply choose a profession, provide one piece of documentation, and then you are verified for life. From that point onwards, you will continue to receive 35% off through Thorn. Now, for those of you who don't qualify, there is still the 10% off using the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, for a one-time purchase. Now, to learn more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of the Behind the Shield podcast with Joel Totoro and Wes Barnett. This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not I have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast 
with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show, Dr. Ken Carpenter. Now, as you know, we have discussed mental health and addiction on numerous episodes in this podcast. However, there has rarely been any discussion on how a family can communicate with a loved one who is battling some form of addiction. So Dr. Carpenter's journey is incredibly powerful from working with Vietnam vets in the VA early in his career through to the inception of the manual that he has created with his colleagues on how to communicate with a loved one in your family to empower them to start seeking alternative coping mechanisms other than the addiction they're relying on. Now, before we get to this incredibly powerful conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of almost 700 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Dr. Ken Carpenter. Enjoy. Well, Ken, I want to start by saying, firstly, thank you to Karina for connecting us. And secondly, welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast today. Uh, well, thanks for having me, James. I really appreciate uh, just, you know, you're offering the platform of you and your, your uh, listeners to hear about what we're doing. So, so how do you know Karina? Because I know she's in the, the literary world. Yeah, um, my colleagues, uh, co-authors on the book and uh, colleagues that I've been working uh, on these particular project with, uh, when the book was coming out, uh, had known Karina and Beth in terms of their work in in uh, making connections and uh, helping people get their word out. So that's how I got to know Karina through that work and and their work and, and efforts to, to help people uh, bring their voice out there. Brilliant. Yeah, she gave me some great kind of mentor wisdom when I first wrote my first book, and I'm actually writing a second one now, and she gave me some more. So uh, yeah, she's been she's been amazing. Well, very firstly, then, where on planet Earth are we finding you on this fine day? Yeah, I'm, I'm hanging out in Long Beach, New York, uh, East Coast, uh, as I was saying, you know, not far, uh, kind of on the South Shore of Long Island. Brilliant. So as you know, we were discussing before we start recording, I like to start at the very beginning of each person's life. So tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Okay. Um, yeah. And, and like I said, uh, it's always an opportunity to reflect on one's life. It, it's You don't always get the opportunity to do that. Um, I've born and raised in New York. Uh, I was born uh, in Queens, uh, parents and lived there in Queens, New York for a good seven years. And then we kind of trucked a little east on Long Island and landed in Mineola, which isn't far from Long Beach. So, uh, and then spent most of my growing up there. Um, come from a family of four. I have a brother who's about uh, a year and almost two years younger than me. 
Um, and, um, you know, he's also living in New York and uh, is gone more different path in life as far as music and stuff. That's his passion and, and, and video editing. And um, I took the psychology route. And uh, my parents, uh, mom and dad, uh, also native New Yorkers. Um, father uh, worked in business and various businesses, uh, different roles in accounting departments and other business ventures uh, in New York City. And my mom kind of took, uh, went a secretarial route. That's was her training, was a secretary for a while, then took some time out when my brother and I came along um, and then went back to that work after we uh, got to a certain age where she probably felt okay with, you know, going back into work. And, uh, you know, there, that that's, was kind of like, you know, working middle-class family. I had to put a, a pin on it, you know. Now, what it, Manhattan obviously is is very, for lack of a better word, congested. I mean, they have to build up to the sky because of the number of people that are housed there. You know, when you go out into Long Beach and there's going to be Long Island and some of these other areas, you know, you tend to, to be a little bit more suburban. What was their experience of, of either working in Manhattan or living just outside? They, uh, you know, it was it was that that's kind of the culture here is like, yeah, most people truck into the uh the cities you hear all the war stories of the long island railroad and the commuting culture and um you know uh there they were native to uh, brooklyn and queens so they were always in the outer boroughs then manhattan the, the central so life was always like the city was this place you go um two for either special events or work and then you know you come back out to uh the other boroughs or long island um for your family life and and the rest of your life um so you know it's interesting because i think manhattan always had that kind of lore it was either place you went to work or you went for or fun things you know be it shows concerts uh seeing the christmas tree uh and other things that they were growing up it was a special trip to go into the city with them um you know for them they probably would prefer to have not had to go in on the weekend but, <laughs> uh doing the monday to friday gig so now what about sports i mean you look, you're still in good shape now what were you playing or or what kind of athletics were you um participating in when you were the school age yeah, um, probably started off, you know, it's, it's actually interesting because I think uh, I'm a dad myself. My kids are grown, but for them, like, and I'm, I know I'm going to use the word that from European, I should be calling it football because I'm in the presence of James. Um, <laughs> but it was, you know, soccer was the entry sport for a lot of kids here. For me, it was still in the days of, uh, you know, you joined Little League, you started playing baseball, and, and that's your first kind of uh, step into organized sports. So I, I did that for, for a long time, and, and uh, my father was a coach for some of that. And uh, then as I got older, I tried football for a while, played uh, football probably in junior high, uh, beginning of high school. And then those were the two major sports that I was involved in growing up, you know. Um, and then... Um, 
you know, running, I guess, later on in my life, which I never thought I would have gotten into. I was not like a big runner growing up. But uh, as I got older, uh, running has become more important to me in my life uh, for a bunch of different reasons, but something I found later. Now, you had, you know, a father that was in business, a mother that was in the clerical side. What were you dreaming of career aspiration wise in high school years? Oh, um, yeah, you know, I'd probably say if I had three things I would was hanging my hats on growing up. When I, I remember being grammar school at first, vet wanted to be a veterinarian. Uh, just loved animals and was drawn to that. Um, and so that was probably the first time in my life I was thinking about like this thing of like, yeah, what are you going to do when you're this thing called a grown up that seems so far away, but was like, you know, yeah, veterinarian was interesting and and that changed when i got into high school um yeah i had two kind of interests uh music i played in a band i was a guitar player and i i really loved the idea of 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 the music profession and psychology and psychology interested me because i think it was just the times trying to figure out okay uh I'm in this thing called the human condition. <laughs> and how do you make sense of it? You know, how do I understand myself? I have questions and just trying to, to think about that. And psychology seemed to be an area of life that said, well, maybe we've got some answers on what it, this thing called life you're experiencing um, is about. So I was always drawn and and I've stayed kind of close to those two passions going but i don't think it was until much later in in college where i really was saying hey you know psychology seems like it might be an actual uh profession that would be interesting to pursue well i want to walk through your journey into you know professional psychology but before we do with this lens that you have now i mean you're you're you know kind of midlife you you're a father you've got grown-up children when you look back at your childhood with this knowledge of psychology are there any elements of your upbringing that you would consider maybe can you know compounded or were contributing elements of childhood trauma that you brought into your own adult, adult experience yeah that's a that's a really great question um you know, I don't want to sound too academic on it. I'll definitely get back to it. But there is that sense that I've come to appreciate more that I'm just a cumulative product of my life. You know, I, I you pick up all these history pages. It becomes part of your history book. So your history book just gets wider and wider, and there are more and more pages in there. And, and, and they all have a say. They all have got a voice. They all show up at different times in different circumstances. So to your particular question, I, I mean, certainly growing up, I, I would say some of the real challenging things over times were more in, in uh, the social sphere. So that's always something that stands, you know, walking through life and trying to navigate, making friends, having friendships. Um, you know, I moved from Queens out to uh, to Long Island, probably around close to second grade. Um, and I wouldn't put the word trauma per se on that, but it was an experience. It did have a little bit of a stamp, which is like, you were comfortable here and now you're in this whole other, you got to meet new people. That comfort zone's gone, you know, and there are people you're stepping into their lives and they've already got momentum 
with the relationships they have. So that that was a challenging thing. And I think about that and it always keeps an appreciation for what's it like to ask people to step outside of their comfort zone? Like, what are you actually really asking people to do? Um, it's not an easy lift, you know? And so I think elements in my past bring me forward on, on growing up of those moments where, um, you know, I, I, I was out of my comfort zone and I, I was challenged to navigate it friend-wise, socially-wise, um, uh, even family-wise, too. I think as a father, that brought into light, like, um, I, I always kind of have this idea that the only test I had as a father was I had to put the car seat in the back of the car. Like, if I could do that, then I was able to drive away from the hospital with a human being, <laughs> just that I could show the person I got that car seat in there. And um, to, when I was contemplating that, it, it had me think about my parents' roles. They were much younger. Like they're from the generation where you had kids when you were about 18, 19, 20. And I try to think like, yeah, if I was 20 years old and I was tasked to start taking care of this human being, I, where was I at 20? So to your point, what are the things that it, it, it's interesting? It goes both ways. The things that form your your perspective by your early life events, and then the way you look back on your life based on some of the 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 big changes in your your role as an adult. Um, so you know, just a different appreciation for the struggles of parenting and and uh, thinking about what it must have been like for my parents trying to navigate this space with far less training or blueprints in terms of what we know in today's day and age, you know? Well, you reminded me of, of a comment someone made. It was a while ago now. I forget which guest it was, but it was absolutely true. I think the analogy they use was if you and I wanted to drive a car as a as a teen, we have to go through, we have to get to the right age. We have to do the training. We have to pass a test. We have to prove that our car is roadworthy and then you get to drive. But you make a child, as you said, as long as you get that child in the car seat, it's like, all right, good luck, bye. And you're gonna, good day, yeah. you take a step back and go, huh, that's that's true. Some people get to be in a family where for their formative years, they get to see a good example of what a mother or a father should do. And as I'm sure we'll get into, other people are raised in a household where they're not given any of those tools and then they have a child. So it's a very interesting kind of perspective when you put it that way that, yeah, you're given a child whether you're a fitting parent or not and you know the rest is up to you yeah no totally i i, I love that idea and frame right i mean it's much harder to get a driver's license than it is to just you know be a parent yeah so we're going to talk about communication as well just as before we moved into your actual professional journey communication and the, the role of the family in some of the mental health um, challenges that we see in society is one of the areas that you talk about in the book. When you look back, did you identify elements of good communication in your household that maybe kind of added to the, the tools that you brought into psychology? You know, that lens, too, of thinking back and having words or or a perspective to look back on those, um, you know, honestly, the communication strategy is something I have to constantly practice even today with the journey I had and, and being given the opportunity to think more about it and to 
to swim in it and and work with people to practice it. It always does orient me to practicing. And when I think about the communication styles as a kid I was exposed to, yeah, it was much different. It wasn't following this line. I think um, everyone's experiences are different with their parents. I certainly had different ways I would have conversations if I was talking to my mother or talking to my father. And, uh, you know, uh, being with with guys and hanging out and, you know, shooting the shit and talking and doing whatever it's um, sorry for actually, I, I don't know if dropping. No, you're, you're fine. <laughs> I, I have the, the right. I have the E on my podcast for that very reason. I think all of us organically okay. are going to, you know, let something go at some point. All right. So appreciate that. Um, it's, you have a different style of communicating. So, you know, yeah, my dad and I probably wouldn't be talking the way I'm talking about how to have communication in a book, you know, like to your point, you know, he learned how to talk his way. That's what he brought to the table. So um, sense of curiosity, I think that's a challenge. A lot of times conversations aren't about being curious about the other perspective. It's about telling you the way you, what your perspective should be, um, or here's my perspective. Um, so, um, you know, I, I think I came into these communication skills much later. I'm not saying that they were, they were absent, but it wasn't necessarily um, the the MO, you know, at times. So then walk me through, you talked about it was college where you really started to, to be all in when it came to psychology as a, as a career idea. So what made you have that aha moment? And then walk me through the kind of early part of your journey into the profession itself. Um, you know, I, I entered college with an interest that started in high school in this idea of psychology as a field. Um, which is actually funny because I don't have any psychologists in my family. Psychology wasn't something that was rah rah about. It was actually some messaging that it's like, yeah, really? Is that a real thing? Um, so, um, but it offered a spotlight. You know, I was just interested in, in introspective, like, yeah, you know, how do you make sense of your feelings? How do you make sense of, uh, of your thoughts? So when you're having a day that you're just not feeling totally connected into and it's a struggle, you know, how do I try to understand that? Um, and to your point before about communication, that's not like typical conversations that really go on, at least uh, was in my experience, you know, that idea of, of introspection and trying to come up with and, and make sense of things uh, about one's feelings. Uh, you know, I, I, I think it was like, yeah, yeah, everyone feels that way. So you suck it up and you keep going, you know, that's, that's just kind of the lane you're in. Um, so in, in college, both music and um, psychology, I actually started out a route with music and I got into a, a track. Um, but I was a guitar player and it wasn't like a formal education. I took lessons, played. I loved it. Still love music. Um, but uh, I went to a class and they had everyone just take out a piece of paper and the guy was like, hey, uh, okay, you have to write out the Star Spangled Banner. I want everyone to write that out. So what I noticed of people around me was they could sight sing. So they were singing it and then writing the notes as they go. And then right there, I was like, wow, I'm out of my league. Um, and <laughs> that was the feedback I got. So um was graciously asked to reconsider <laughs> my <laughs> desire to be in the music program. 
which was this big decision point. I had made friends. I was hanging out. I went to SUNY Albany. That's where I was going to school up at the time. And, um, you know, what do I do here? Do I go somewhere else? Do I pick up and pack up? I finally got comfortable there. Or do I pursue this other thing, psychology? So that was ultimately at that decision point. I said, well, let me see um, what psychology is like. Um, so I just started taking some classes and I, I went cold calling on some doors for some of the professors because I knew they were doing research. And I stumbled into someone's office that was turned out to be a guy who does a lot of anxiety work, uh, Dave Barlow. But um, so I wound up, they're like, yeah, we need volunteers come in and and see what it's like. And that started to open my eyes because I always thought psychology was like, yeah, it's, you know, you want to help people or it's a way you just explore. But in that role, it opened my eyes to like the science behind psychology. And that was just like pretty wild because I never thought like that. Like I would hear people be curious and ask questions and I would be like, that kind of way of thinking about life would never enter my mind. Like, how do you even generate a question like that? So it was really just, it was, it was, it was wild. I was like, wow, there's just another way of trying to think through life and to think about psychology. So that was the hook, you know? And after that, it it really started to intrigue me, both the scientific part of it, as well as the part of just how does this knowledge help people? You know, how can it be useful in the world? Um, So that, that fueled, and that's where I kept going, you know? Was clinical psychology the first kind of area of expertise that you focused on then? Yeah, that's where I started to get more of an immersion in it, you know, and I worked at a, a anxiety lab. And um, from there, there were people doing work on panic disorder and panic attacks and um, and uh, medical conditions. They were trying biofeedback to help people with chronic pain and, and GI issues. So I was just seeing, wow, all these different approaches to trying to you know, now I'll say alleviate human suffering or, you know, the suffering a part of the human condition. Um, um, but that also opened a door. I got introduced to, uh, after, when I graduated, introduced me to uh, Dr. Lawrence Kolb, who's a colleague of a guy that was uh, one of the labs I was working in. He was working with Vietnam vets. So that was my first job working with him um, because his whole his his whole office was a safe haven for uh, Vietnam vets with PTSD. So I was this 21 year old kid sitting in his office uh, meeting uh, vets, and he had a research study that he was doing to help trying to help vets with PTSD. At the same time, it was uh, it also documented the effects gave them a voice because at that time with agent orange and everything else there was a lot of questions whether yeah do the vets really even have issues and they had to really fight to be heard that you know we didn't leave this war the same and um so my first job was often um trying to assess the degree of ptsd and they had different ways of doing that and the vets were uh, you know, the, these individuals were open to um, going through and getting physiological assessments um, um, 
when hearing combat sounds, what's the heart rate do? Um, so there was real physiological reactivity that you could document that people brought back with them from these experiences. And that was another formidable job that I had. I mean, that that left a major print in just my experience in so many ways. Well, it's such a unique kind of perspective. And I've had, you know, Vietnam vets on here, you know, told their story of what it's like to to come home. You know, you have, you actually have a false perception, I think, of World War II, where every, you know, soldier returned to a ticker tape parade. And obviously now, as I educate myself more, I realize, yes, some did, but many didn't. And they, you know, silently went back into their communities. But the World War, excuse me, the Vietnam generation didn't just come back. They were, they came back to opposition and being spat on and, you know, horrendous stories. Some of these men, in this particular case, all men did some heroic things, you know, in, in the name of this country. Um, when you know we're sitting here now in 2022 and the the veteran and first responder mental health discussion has progressed quite a lot what did it look like back then you know what what were you seeing then and with 2022 eyes what were some of the things that we were doing wrong back then yeah uh well, you know, I'll answer kind of from two two experiences. One family, I know, you know, I appreciate you kind of bringing that big lens to, hey, all this stuff that we talk about, it's not in a vacuum. My godfather was a Vietnam vet, and he has passed away since. Um, but uh, he would always, when he knew I was working there, there was always this kind of connection, which is how are my guys doing? How are people doing? That there was a brotherhood that existed not because people had conversations but because i know probably what some of their experiences were um and that for me was a profound experience because for the the gentleman that i had the opportunity to get to know in that that job um they were attracted to that office once because it felt safe um and once they got Basically, I said what they taught me <laughs> taught me the importance of of um, of connection. Taught me the importance of what it's like actually to let yourself be vulnerable. Um, and when they felt safe with me, I mean, they got to know me. I can't tell you how much they had my back. And I, I, it probably would make me tear up if I really sat here and thought, because even when I started applying to graduate schools, they're like, we'll drive you to your your interviews. They People actually offered, because they knew I didn't have a car, they would take me. I mean, these are guys that I just got to know through the work there. But I, I, it was so profound, the warmth that you could experience. Now, they would say it in their own ways, but that that is something I always carry with me today. Um, and I think some of that was done in silence, right? So a thing I appreciate, I was 21 and I have this first job and I'm going to talk to these guys. And they would tell me, yeah, at 18, they were in a foxhole and uh, wondering if they were going to make it through the night um, or sending their friends home who had died next to them uh, during the night, um, or they've lost all their comrades 
and there'd be a quick celebration for the victory, and then that's it. They turn the page. So I, I, I think, and I can speak as a layperson here. I'm not going to say I, I work day in and day out with vets, but the cultures change. I think one is there's an appreciation for service that probably got lost in that team time frame, like you said, that you were in this extreme condition and you came back. And my godfather told me about it. he couldn't get a cab ride home from Kennedy because um, he was wearing his uniform when he landed back. Um, and actually something that stayed with him is someone grabbed a cab driver and said, you're taking this gentleman back to his apartment and I'll pay for that. But if it wasn't for the act of that person, he couldn't get a cab. Um, the, the idea that, you know, you have to sit in silence and that's another profound thing that hopefully we can change the culture and not that an outsider would ever really be able to fully grasp that lived experience that first responders have that vets have. Um, but perhaps there's just a little bit more of an appreciation <laughs> that they walked a certain path and that's that left footprints that changes you as a human being. And can we allow space for you to talk about that and not have to live in isolation around that? Um, and I, I've, I've seen a change in the culture around that when I see people even thanking veterans or acknowledging their presence in ways that I think back then we just, it, it, there were so many missed opportunities to support, uh, to support these guys. Well, I mean, thank you. I mean, there's not many people I speak to that were, you know, 21 and got to deal with with those, uh, you know, men and women that came back somewhat recently after they did. Because you think about, especially the ones that were drafted, didn't even want to go in the first place, went over there, and then they come back and they think, well, at least I'm going to be embraced by my community when I return. And then they, again, not everyone, a lot of people I'm sure didn't think that. But if that's the first thing that you see, which has happened on many, many of these interviews when these, these people came back, you imagine that you're already carrying that trauma and then you have that kind of betrayal from your own tribe, how crushing that must be. And from what I'm told, and I don't know if this is true, but people have told me a lot of the the veteran suicides that we see in the 22-a-day-ish statistics are actually Vietnam-era veterans who did immerse themselves in some sort of profession, and now they're at retirement age, sitting at home on their own, and now this is finally catching up with them. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. The sense of isolation, I think, is huge. That was, and, and, and to have people actually take the risk to try to step back into life, um, and connect. I mean, that was just the other thing is the level of connection is hard. I, I know, like, I'm not, I haven't been a first responder. I haven't been in active military duty. You experience and you see things in life. And I know you, you've had your journey um, in, in those professions um, that most people just won't experience. <laughs> um, and, and, it, it it can change. And this is what I learned from them. It just changes the things you take for granted. It changes the way you think about the day in and day out rules of life. Um, it changes the way you connect with other people uh, in, in just ways that, you know, were challenging. And I think like you're saying, you know, for people then to be retiring out and that's another sense of community or purpose <laughs> and meaning. Um, there's, yeah, without, without that sense of purpose and meaning, I, I think that can be a, 
that's a tough, a tough space to be in. Absolutely. Well, you, you know, that was the group that you worked with. You mentioned about grad school. At what point in this journey did you start, um, kind of interacting with the addiction element and, and, you know, start focusing on that as well? Yeah. I, a little bit of learning some of how people were coping, the Vietnam vets, uh, and getting to know them and, 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 you know, things that they said they would deal with on a daily basis, being back and, uh, you know, no way to shut off the mind <laughs> and the things to those history pages. So there was a sense of like, you know, people are finding their own ways to navigate, navigate their history, navigate their life. Um, in grad school, and you know, there's probably missing links, in, and that's what I love about your questions here. You know how how things fell into place. Uh, you know, substance use has always been part of the music aspects of my life, um, and the other psychology work. Um, I've it, always been around in a sense substance use the use of of of, of mind altering substances substances and how it lands in all different ways um i've had friends who have um and acquaintances going back that have lost their lives to substances um and and, and certainly knowing friends and families and even extended families in my family members that have you know struggled with that um and in graduate school, I wound up working um, just in treatment facilities that were, um, you know, at the time, addiction treatment facilities. Um, and, and I don't want to sound, yeah, I, I want to be careful how I say this. Uh, I've, I've always had a pull for working with underdogs. You know, and I think I got that some back to the VA if I had to put something, working with people who've been sidelined, working with people, hearing their stories and and really the power and 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 how much I, I learned from them. Um, and I, I think substance abuse when I was working in addiction facilities had that same kind of way society often responded to people that were struggling with substances. Um you don't really have a voice, you know, um, there's label will sideline you. We're not really, you can't be taken for truthfulness, you know? And, and, um, I started working and, and getting to know people who were doing this heavy lifting of trying to change their life around this. Um, and it opened my eyes more and really started for me one to get an appreciation for again, what change is like, and, how to, and I also felt that in substance use and substance use disorders, um, I don't think you can get any closer to the human condition than to that process of change. Because it does bring so much of our humanness to the forefront of that. Um, the struggles we, around change, the tug of wars we can get into, um, the 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 sense of isolation, what does social connection mean? What's the importance of that? I mean, it's all kind of in the back and forth of how society and individuals try to grapple with, you know, people that are um, struggling with, with substances. Um, so it brought me closer into that fold. Sorry. 
Hopefully I'm not too worried, man. Sorry. No, 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 not at all. No. So please educate me around that time. Was this when we were well entrenched still in the this is your brain on drugs kind of propaganda that was going on? So it's actually interesting. I'll pick up on this later. I actually wound up later on in my career working with the guy who created that commercial with the eggs. And if you remember back. Oh, I do. Seared Um, into my mind. (laughs) Yeah. For a bad reason. It's. It's a fascinating. I, I learned in hearing from them, but I think when in the, I was probably working, it was in the eighties, late eighties, nineties, around that. So there was that narrative, you know, um, addiction is bad. Um, maybe a little bit more of a narrative around disease in terms of, like you said, the neurobiology. Um, but I hadn't gotten there yet. And uh, it was still the idea of alcohol being in the forefront. Um, cocaine and crack probably started getting big around that time. So it was making its way. Um, but initially, when I first started out, you had most people struggling around alcohol. And then down in the basement, down really packed away where you had people who at that time were struggling with heroin use. Um, and it was different generations, um, around heroin use. I think snorting it just started to become more prominent. You still had people who were, you know, having to inject it. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, fentanyl and all that stuff, it was yet to even be talked about, you know? So, um, it was still, and still alcohol and nicotine are the two you know, if you're talking millions of lives that are impacted, those two still crush numbers wise everything else out there. Just not in the headlines as much, probably for a bunch of different reasons. But yeah. Well, we're not getting it's not political at all, but not getting like too sarcastic in a British way. I mean, you look at the way the last two years were handled, you could get cigarettes and alcohol brought to your house during a a disease that affected your pulmonary system. So the irony I think is totally. was blatant then. Yeah, totally. Totally. You know, you can't isolate that bigger context with all the things we're talking about at all. Absolutely. Well, with that philosophy, then the reason why I said the brain on drugs, obviously, it was there was a very demonizing element to the addicts themselves. Um, you know, I've I've seen all the layers from so much, you know. Uh, you know, uh, pain and death from addiction itself, the ripple effect as far as prostitution, homelessness, violence from, you know, addiction, the addicts still trying to get their next fix. And then the layers, you know, the people selling, the people smuggling. Um, and so, yes, there within that kind of um, pyramid, there are some horrible people, but the base, the masses are people just struggling with their own pain. So you have this narrative of, of, of you know, the, the, uh, the addict is technically subhuman is the way I, I kind of would remember it was painted to a lot of average people, especially during political campaigns. What was the the lens through in the psychology world? Was it still the belief that these are, you know, pharmaceutical hooks? Or was there already the emerging um, understanding that it's a mental health crisis, there's pain that's being filled with whatever the closest tool is? Yeah, I think that started to percolate like in the 80s. I think, you know, uh, interesting, this uh, this gentleman, uh, William White, has written this book. Uh, he, it's kind of a tour de force of, of at least American culture around uh, 
since the 1800s up to now on how did America, what's, what's been all the narratives, what's been the whole process in which, uh, substance use substance use addiction all these what's the lenses how has society tried to deal with that um and certainly you know ups and downs and always debates and different set of lenses that are brought to bear i i think to your point in that around the 80s um, we had still a school of thought um that it was a disease that that's what you have um how that word was used and conceptualized has always kind of morphed in 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 how people are using it but at that time basically look um there's a this disease you're defective in some way and there's really only one way you're going to get out of this you know and if you're not stepping away from it um there are other aspects to this disease. Uh, you know, certain people would say you've got character defects. Uh, there's a defective part of you. I mean, so I, I think over time, there's been a lot of different set of lenses. Families, us, and society has been offered. In the 80s, I think psychology started to push in a little bit more. And, and then there was a guy, Gordon Marlatt, um, who started to do these kind of studies that were like, you know what? Yeah, the, the the molecule is something that's something you can't, you know, we're not going to be metaphysical here in a sense, but, you know, substances have biological effects. But if that's all we narrow it down to, how do you explain this other stuff? And he was showing, well, what's the effect of expectations? What's the effect of what the substance is going to do for me, my beliefs? Um, how do you explain certain things when we see people struggling that these other models can't deal with so around the 80s you start getting a more psychosocial version of a relapse and change and the the function substance use serves like like it serves a purpose um sometimes that was lost in the narrative which is uh, if i step back for a second you're enduring a lot of things here in your continued kind of relationship with this, it's got to be giving you something if you're staying in the game with this. Because if you weren't getting anything from it, absolutely nothing, if all you got was pain, you would have stopped. Most human beings, if that's the only thing they experience with something, they'll walk away. So it just opened to curiosity. It's like, yes, I know that, but... What's the upside here for you? Can I hear that? Um, that's a profound question. And I talk more about it later on. Um, but a question I never appreciated and started to as a psychologist, it's a much different conversation I was having with people when I started sitting with them and first asking them, what's useful about it for you? Not as a trick question, because people would be like, all right, this guy's got something up his sleeve. What's the trick here? Because that's not the narrative people were given permission about. How dare you talk about what you liked about it? I'll keep that to myself. I'll give people the party line about how it's, yeah, I, I, it's all bad. Um, but if you give people space to at least acknowledge, let me hear what, why there's an investment here. What's it doing for you? It, it just changes the whole direction and the whole tone of conversations. Um, it's And those questions often still are not asked um, in trying to understand. 
It was really interesting. I had a guy on. Have you heard of Johan Hari? The name, yes. Okay. It rings a bell. I can't say deep dives on, but yes. So he wrote Chasing the Scream and Lost Connections. And then there's another one um, he just wrote recently and the name just fell out of my head. But in uh, Chasing the Scream, which is about addiction, um, he talks about an experiment that was called Rat Park. And please stop me if you're familiar with it, or, but I'll, I'll summarize it then. So you have you know these these rats and they're trying to prove, I think it was cocaine in the water. So they had pure water and cocaine water. And they put the rats in the cage and the, the rats drank the cocaine water. Okay, well, obviously, there's, you know, there's, there's a hook. There's a, there's a chemical hook to these drugs. Someone had the epiphany, well, wait a second. It might be the environment. So they created Rat Park. So they created the most fun place a rat could be, um, you know, with all these things that can play on and everything. Same two bottles. And now the rats only drank the water. So that, to me, is such a great illustration that we believe that these chemicals had a hook and we miss the entire conversation. Is it the environment that's creating this pain that's then forcing them to choose the two, one of the two bottles that gives them an escape? Yeah, no, that's awesome. I, I so appreciate you putting it out there. It's, it's, there's an important message in that. And certainly where we were going and talking as we go, that, that context is important. And, and so much of the narrative, this idea of molecule tries to strip context away and say it's it's the molecule here right this this is where the problem is it really doesn't matter the context um the molecule is is what's going to bring you down and and rat park shows well if i put the same substance in a different context it looks much different how people relate to that um there was a study by lee robbins um and why i bring that up is we're talking about vietnam and this was a study that kind of parallels that which is one of the the things and and i apologize if, if you know about this already uh, i'll put it out there anyway um just that with opiate use that in vietnam the rates of opiate use kind of went up for for veterans when they were in country in vietnam and the argument was like not only we're we going to have veterans over there but the the drug use is just going to carry over and be just an awful experience. So now that when we have veterans, we've got veterans with addiction problems coming over. And this was an epidemiological study. And what they found out, and this was documented I, maybe in the 70s, um, was that for many of the veterans, when they came home, they stopped using. But the narrative of it being the model, why should that happen? If it's the molecule. You shouldn't be able to do that. But it said, well, there's something about context here that we should think about. That when someone is brought into a different context, it changes their relationship with the substance. It's not the same. Um, and we lose that. It's hard to find that part of the discussion when we get to substance use disorders and not and some of that's the messaging and the brain on drugs and there's 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 power in that narrative but what it does miss is exactly to your point not only is the substance biologically influencing sure that's important to know but no one's using substances in a vacuum it's in context and that's going to influence how that happens. And that's a really powerful message, I think, that we try to leverage and where psychology was setting some of the 
the grounds and treatments that weren't getting traction, but were trying to leverage the importance of context. Well, I think, um, yeah. I'm sorry, I was going to say that I think a good illustration of a non-pharmaceutical hook that is so evident, I mean, I'll put my hand up and say I've had, at times I've had to reset is, is cell phones, you know, whether it's social media or checking your emails or whatever, where I'm Pavlov's dog, you know, my worst times I'm, I'm picking it up, you know, at a red light in, in my car. Oh, you know, let me just check if anything's happened in the last 123 seconds, because that will make a difference in my life. So even when there's not, you know, that, that, um, chemical hook, if you look at porn or gambling or social media use, um, that exists there and there is no chemical interaction. It's, it's, again, dopamine. But ultimately, when you're in a good mental space, you forget your phone's even there. And I think that's another great illustration of, yes, you know, that uh, biology and, and pharmacology is an element of it. It is giving you, you know, a certain physiological response. But your need for that response is really the discussion. Yeah, it's fascinating and, and so important that you brought that up because I think, again, as we look at where conversations hit boundaries and fences, I, I love the way you frame that because when I hear you talk it, I'm like, okay, this is the challenge of being a human being and interacting with the things in my world, be it cell phones, be it others. And like you said, for some reason, that's a huge bridge. Someone could be like, well, yeah, James and Ken are talking about cell phones, but no, no, we're talking about addiction. Somehow, there's no no commonality to think about the human condition, and, and you draw, you know, you drew an important line there, which is, hey, let's just think about the challenges, humanness, learning. What's you know, how are those processes just always kind of unfolding in daily life? Because um, they're part of it, you know. Well, you've got the workbook, which we're going to talk about, but you know, a big part of that is obviously the communication with the family and, you know, that, that, um, two way conversation. When I think again of addiction 20 years ago, I think, for example, of a TV show called Intervention, where this person's not only having this happen, but it's actually happening on national television. So they're humiliated in front of millions of people, but their family, the kind of philosophy, if I'm not misunderstanding it was, you know, sit down, stop being an addict. I've had enough, you know, and, and now again, you fast forward and you realize, okay, maybe when in the, in the household, that wasn't the best way of approaching addiction and looking at the addict. What was your perception of the interaction in the household then versus, you know, now when you've written an entire book about this? I wish I could say things have changed. I used to believe things have changed in the circles. And coming back, I'll, hopefully we'll have time uh, to talk about the eye-opening experience of when you're leaving academia tracks and you're actually out in the world hearing people talk about what's going on. Um, you get to appreciate where the messaging just doesn't permeate. Um, but to your point, I think, you know, there's been a lot of narratives and I, I, I think they never disappear, and I, I don't want to lose the historical context. Uh, often it's like, hey, we're trying to understand people, and we're, we're, we're grabbing for understandings. How can I make sense of what we're seeing? Um, so, you know, it's probably what brought me into psychology, this human, and what has me check out your uh, podcasts and others. Like That's always opportunities to get a set of lenses to understand my world. 
Um, so that, that that's kind of like a natural, really cool process. Um, and there's always going to be people willing to offer a set of lenses. So I think to your, like, you know, 20 years ago, what were the lenses families were getting when their loved one was, was struggling? And often families were the front line. They were the ones seeing their loved ones having problems, perhaps before the individual um, who was struggling saw a problem because they were still getting something. And, and I think families, the messaging was always, about how do you get someone motivated to stop? It's all about motivation. And, um, you know, back then it was, I think, like, look, you can't control someone. And so don't waste your energy trying to control them. Uh, There's some utility, I think, embedded in there. Um, But it swung really wide. And it was like, not only don't help them, look, there's nothing you can do. They got to hit rock bottom. You know, eventually, just let them fall. And when they fall far enough, they'll be motivated to stop. Um, And just don't get in the way of that. The worst thing you can do is somehow get in the way of them falling. And if you do that, you're enabling them. And that's a bad thing to do. And we'll... This, there's a little sarcasm in here. I don't want to lose the fact that, you know, often it was trying to help people get guidance on that. But we'll also say, don't be an enabler. Don't be that type of person. So, wow, as a family member, I'm like, okay, I never thought in a million years I'd have to deal with this. I don't know where to turn. But, yeah, I, I guess that's what you got to do. Um, you got to step away. That's doesn't feel good. I love this person. But... You know, I'm being told, don't get in the way and don't be an enabler. Tough love. And yeah, you know, let's that tough love. Um, and let me equate that to that beautiful example of Rat Park again. If the strategy was I see my rat in the park and there's drugs there and they're using the drugs, the strategy you're telling me to use is let me go into Rat Park and let me remove all the activities that could be competing with the drug use. Let me take away the swing set. Let me take away the bars. Let me take away the lever pressing that would deliver food instead of drug. Let me take away other rats that could offer social connection that wouldn't be around that. So let me strip rat park. And then the rat's going to want to stop using substances. And when we think about it in terms of, like you said, rat park, it says, well, the advice you're giving someone is to actually have a person lose everything in their life, except one thing, which is the substance, which may make the substance even more valuable. Because everything else. So that advice and families lost connections. So I think that was the mantra. That's often what families felt. And there was a lot of conflict because if I don't want to turn my back on my loved one, I'm going to do that in secret. Because if I do that publicly, I'm going to be told I'm not tough enough. I'm an enabler. Or worse, I'm actually codependent. Um, So now it's also not only is my loved one struggling, but now I'm defective somehow. 
in trying to help me. So the narrative became really a set of handcuffs in 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 the extreme version of that. Um, and we can do the nuance around that. There's nuance there that that makes sense. But I think that so I thought that changed. <laughs> to your point, what's changed in 20 years? I was like, yeah, wow, it's great. People are starting to bring a different set of lenses to that. And most of my work was with people who they themselves were struggling with making change. They'd show up and be like, Ken, yeah, part of me doesn't want to do this anymore. And some parts of me still pull me down that road. And that's a real hard tug of war I'm in the middle of. Um, And motivational interviewing and other things were kind of a set of lenses that came on on the scene later. Um, But what I never got a full appreciation for was the families behind the individual I was working with. Because the treatment system really wasn't set up necessarily to connect and pros and cons there. But when I started talking to families, even within the last 10 years, they're saying, well, this is what we were told to do. Tough love, rock bottom, um, throw them out of the house or throw her out of the house. Um, you know, all these strategies. So to your point, I don't know much how much has really changed in the big picture when it comes to the messaging that's that's out there in the world for people. Well, let's get to what you touched on right before that. So you're in the academic space. Walk me through your journey into the quote unquote real world and, and what you were struck by. Yeah, so uh, academic wise, um, did a lot of Spent twenty years doing clinical trial research, multidisciplinary. Let's find new treatments to help people change behavioral treatments. Uh, would uh, work with psychiatrists. What kind of medications could help people make changes? So, you know, that also was a huge taboo. Medication assisted treatment. Um, I'd work in methadone clinics, uh, buprenorphine clinics. Um, and for people who are methadone, they couldn't even go to meetings because they were on a medication. So their way to recovery often was stigmatized back then. And I'm not here to preach there's only one way to change. But for some people, those are life-changing, and particularly now with overdosing and things. But I, I was in those waters looking at different ways to help people make change and and uh, working with neuroscientists, looking at brain scans, what's different when people are trying to make change from drug use. Um, you raised that dopamine. How does dopamine system work? And it, it was a narrow path. Um, but after a while in the research game, um, it has its own grind. It has its own kind of way of... Uh, priorities about what questions are the questions that are being funded to be answered and what are the questions I'm interested in, what are the areas I'm in. So it's a whole different world than trying to think about um, pursuing the things of value and and, and making making a living doing that on one hand, actually. And, and the research world just has its own its own challenges, you know, and, and, and priorities. Um, so I came over to CMC. Uh, my colleagues that I'm working with. And at that time, I was gracious, I, still very thankful. Uh, my colleague, Jeff uh, Foote, um, 
I reached out to him and we got talking and he was like, yeah, there's room to do clinical work here. And, and by the way, um, I'm working with an organization called Partnership for Drug-Free Kids. Um, matter of fact, they were started by a group of individuals who worked on Madison Avenue, um, and I'm hoping I have this totally correct, who felt the power of messaging in the retail business world could actually be used to help change some of the messaging um, in the world of substance use. So it was bringing that skill set to how do we help people think about drug use differently? Um, and one individual who kind of mentored me and was part of the project, uh, Tom Hedrick, who um, we, we lost uh, in the last two years, um, he uh, he was one of the people that were, you know, those advertising ideas about the brain on drugs. And at that time, it was a way to try to shift the messaging of the moral failing and some of the ways of judging people. And yeah, there was this idea of the narrative shifts more towards it being a brain issue. And that's where the emphasis will be. That will shift some of the narrative and 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 have people react differently to it. But his journey actually was not just that. He was an anchoring point for parents across the country who were struggling with isolation, not feeling they were getting guidance or a set of lenses that were helpful or were given, given um, messaging that had them actually react to their loved ones in ways that were more hurtful um, and kind of pulled them to be the kind of of people they didn't want to be so he my my colleagues wrote a book uh, beyond addiction which was taking craft and these other things that have been sitting in journal articles that never made its way in the world no one spoke about these ideas which that rat park fed there was a whole messaging system about how you can help families learn ways to support that totally aligned with the rat park scenario, but it never made it out into the world. So when parents heard about like, well, wait a minute, you're telling us there are other ways that people have researched that I can help my, why am I not hearing about this stuff? Why has it never even been brought up in a conversation that I've heard? And he reached out and said, how can we help parents learn this messaging? Um, and Better yet, the real power of human interaction is when parents get to talk to other parents who have been there. Yeah, Ken Carpenter, psychologist, can get out there in the world, but that's just another kind of expert telling people what's out there. But if I'm talking to another dad, and if I take my psychologist hat off, and I'm just hanging out talking to other dads and we're sharing experiences, that is a much different message and a way of thinking about things than the, the old model of experts swooping in with their, their expertise. And not that there's not a place for it is, but it's not necessarily where people are looking for advice. They're looking for advice at the ballpark when they're sitting next to their friends and both their kids are playing ball and they're talking about what's going on in the house 
or in the church parking lots after service. Um, or, you know, a dad might be talking at lunch with a couple of good buddies that he feels comfortable with. That's where these conversations are happening. So his idea was how can we help people learn to talk about this stuff so that these ideas become part of those conversations. And that's where we went in all of this work, which is how do we help build a peer-to-peer system, parent-to-parent system that helps give them different narratives about other ways you can help your loved one than the typical narrative of you got to turn your back, you got to use tough love, and that's your only option. Um, so, yeah. Well, I mean, it's so pertinent to hear, firstly, when you think of the tactical population, you know, the, the police, fire, military, etc., the buy-in is huge. As you, you touched on earlier, you know, I, I, I spent my life in psychology. I don't know what it's like to do one of your professions and vice versa. I couldn't, you know, couldn't um, relate to you in many areas when it comes to being a professor, being in the academic space, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But so that buy-in is so important. I think that's where the, some of the struggles are in the first responder profession when they're trying to find a clinician initially. Is is this someone that understands me? Are they are they culturally competent? But the peer support model is huge. You know, it's it's very, very powerful. And basically, as you're saying, what we're really trying to do is go back to what should always have been in the fire station, which is the dining table, you know, the kitchen table, where we sit down with a cup of coffee and we just offload our stuff. But as we we kind of joked about in the beginning of this conversation, you know, you have all these skills to these lessons to to teach you how to drive before you take the car away, but we don't as a parent. So parenting on its own is a challenge, but now you introduce a, a child who's struggling with a mental health issue. Now we're really out of our depth, and so there is a need for a guidebook. We do need to be educated, and we're not going to go to community college for this. This is something that we're going to have to learn. And you know, so so the book, as you mentioned, is is great, but the workbook I think is incredible. So. So people listening, I'm sure a lot of people, maybe they're, they're challenging, they have challenges of their own when it comes to mental health. Um, I have, have seen my my little boy go through some stuff. He's doing incredibly well now, but he had a dip, definitely a very obvious dip. Um, and it terrified me, you know, and, and then sadly, there was one incident where the school he was at made it a thousand times worse by some horrific decisions and some complete deviation from well-written protocols. So talk to me about the genesis of the workbook, and then I'd love to kind of just explore a few of the kind of principles behind it. Sure. And, and, and you know, thanks for highlighting. You've allowed me to bring my non-academic persona, and you set the stage doing that by just saying, hey, tell me about you as a person, you know, your, your history and stuff. Um, and I want to highlight that because not only is parenthood, and when I put my dad cap on, when I... And when I go out and connect that connection that I'm, I don't want to talk to you as a psychologist per se here, talk to you as a dad, the risk with parenthood, which is even though the world says maybe not, we, we get an appreciation for individual journey and stuff. When you take a human being home and they're making their way in the world and they've got their struggles I don't know. I know personally for me, it's hard. There is no switch at times to shut off. How good am I doing as a dad when I see my kids struggling? 
And it might not be all the time. There could be moments where I hit that. Um, but I also know that your parenting in some sense is done in a public space because both you and your kid are out there in the world. And that was another part of that narrative when we were thinking that, you know, parents say, yeah, I know I feel that eyes on me based on how my kid's doing. And that's an extra weight in all of this. Not only am I struggling in my own space, the world isn't always so understanding in terms of that. And that just fuels some of the isolation that that has um, families experience. It's profound. It really, really is. Um, and, and, and certainly more recently for parents whose children have died because of overdose, which has been skyrocketing and and how they're seen in the world um, and what they carry. So the risk of parenthood is just unbelievable. And no one ever told me that going into it. But, me neither. <laughs> um, yeah, it's like, wow, okay. Well, there's a bit of information. I don't know if it would have been helpful or not, but it certainly is like, wow, okay, yeah, this is, you know, this is real. Um, in, in, in the work on... On the skills, I, I, again, I, I appreciated you kind of saying rat park. Um, you know, back in the '60s and '70s, the, the some of the behavioral and it, that never made its way was the the importance of social context, and certain behavioral folk were like, "Yeah, you know, behavior never occurs in a vacuum. It occurs in both the physical context and the historical context, and it's the meeting of those two things." People bring their history and they're interacting with the world and the context. And it's it's those two things that create that space for what's going on in the moment. Um, so behaviors just tried to look at it differently and saying, I can't directly control you. Like, I can't tell you to not feel something. I can't tell you to not think something. Those are human experiences. But where I do have influence is in the context in which you're in. And to your point, if context changes, I experience things differently. So they were developing this, this whole treatment called community reinforcement approach, and it started around alcohol use, which is like, well, if we're going to help people change, let's think about it as how can we help create a community context that actually supports people in their, their efforts to bring new behaviors into their world. And it started around alcohol use, which is, so they would try to develop broader communities. I'm not going to try to change you as a person per se, but let's think about you as in context. And that includes a whole bunch of things, you know, colleagues, friends, family is a huge context. Um, and they would work with individuals, but what they were also starting to experience is family members would call them up and be like, my loved one's struggling. Um, they're at home. They're not really interested in getting help. Where do we go there? So they started to think like, well, if it's community reinforcement, how can we create, um, and I'm using this analogy because it is so potent and I, I don't want to strip away the humanness of all this, but how can I make my home more like Rat Park, right? How can I change, if my loved one's not making changes here, I want to support them. How can we change the context? 
So there was starting to be thoughts like, well, we can help family members think about how to do that. Um, and even if the individual who wants to change is not ready for treatment, that doesn't mean we can't help family members just think about how to create a context that can be supportive and help influence people's decision makings. In the context of how we're relating, how we respond, um, and they developed their treatment program, never really got so much traction, still lives more in academia, although it's made bigger footprints. And then someone built on that and was like, yeah, let me think strategically. So this guy, uh, uh, Bob Myers, and he's open with his story. He grew up in a household where, you know, his father struggled and he saw the impact on family. So he had a very lived experience. There was like, there's got to be something we can help families with here and help them. And at the same time, create a context that can probably be impactful for their loved one. So the different models we had there or narratives was you can't do anything. Let them hit rock bottom. Don't get involved. Um, focus on yourself, which there's some helpfulness to that, but there's nothing you can do. Or the one thing you can do is tough love, intervention, hit them hard. Don't take the BS. Just give it, give them the truth. Um, and then, you know, if you lay the law down, then they're going to want to change. So um, 1999 was the first study they did of this treatment called community reinforcement um, approach and family training. The acronym is CRAFT. Um, and they said, hey, let's just compare three different ways of helping families. You got a loved one you got in your household who's struggling and they really don't want it. They're not interested in changing right now. Don't worry about it. Why don't you come in? We're going to teach you how to create a context that can care for you and help your loved one. If you get that, you're in our craft condition. Um, we actually want to know if it's better than interventions. So your randomization will be a flip of a coin. Some families got craft. Some got this intervention. They were coached. They draw up the intervention. They were going to have it. And then another group was went to was told, go to Al-Anon. And Al-Anon's still out there and can be extremely helpful to families to give a sense of community and connection. And Al-Anon straight up, you know, they're like, we're not about you trying to influence your loved one. We're about giving you support um, for you to focus on yourself. And that's so it was put there just as as a uh, comparison condition. And what, what were the results at the end? Was that about for families that got craft? Six about well, it's varied over time, but I'd say between sixty and seventy percent of those families, their loved ones picked up the phone eventually and called a clinic for help. The intervention engagement rate was only about thirty percent, and it wasn't because the intervention itself wasn't useful. It was that most families never got to the point of being able to pull it off. It was a hard thing to do. It just never got to that point where they could sit down. And do it. If families were able to do it and it was done in a, a coached way, not the way we've talked about on TV per se, but it had impact um, because it is a way of trying to help someone get feedback on your concerns about them and, and, and your hopes for them and what you're willing to support or not. And Al-Anon, it was much less. It was about maybe 10% of the families. So that was the first study in 99 to say to families like... You can stay connected. 
you can learn communication and behavioral skills to create a different context around this. Um, and you can learn how to stay true to your values and what's important. And it actually works. More often than that, loved ones will start to think differently about their behavior and, and, and seek help um, um, for the long-term change. So that put craft on the map. The stuff existed in different versions and forms, and there were studies giving rise. But that was the first kind of funded study to say, you know what, this works. So craft, that was 1999. Craft is just starting to make inroads in the last three or four years. And that was what people were hearing about when I spoke about Tom um, and people say, what do you mean craft? I've never heard of that. What is that? Well, wait a minute. There's another thing out here that's been studied and yet it's never in the narrative. And that just blew people's minds. So that on the peer to peer level is I want to be able to talk to other parents when I'm at the dinner, when I'm at the table or I'm at the lunch table um, because people are asking me because they knew my kid was there. And they lean on me. They want to know, what did I do? Because they can trust being vulnerable by talking to me because they know I've been there. I'm not going to judge them. And fathers and, and moms are going to be very careful about who they talk to about this. Um, so that that started putting this stuff on a map um, that we started to try to work with the peer-to-peer -peer system that gave rise to the you know our, our narratives around this. We'll just go into the rat park for a second. I think this is an important, you know, analogy while we have it kind of front and center. When you talk about physical health and mental health, the choices that were made by many leaders around the world during the last two years was to go into rat park, remove all the equipment, segregate the rats, and then allow them to deliver the the cocaine war you know and that could be obviously netflix binging fast food alcohol cigarettes but it was it was that the unhealthy coping mechanisms were you know um abundant but the gyms parks beaches were closed you know even the fire stations people listening thank goodness i got out the fire service before it hit um because they weren't allowed to even eat in the same room so we're trying to bring these these firefighters back to the kitchen table and they were you know segregated and relegated to different rooms which is insanity so it is an interesting parallel and you know i i don't know if you're seeing the same thing i mean you were probably in one of the most confined areas of the country when you look at it overall but i'm seeing now a ripple effect especially of the mental health side, which, you know, mental and physical obviously are very related as well, that we're just starting to see the kind of true impact of all that isolation. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, I agree 100%. I, I, just context is so important. Connection, you know, uh, the bigger picture. And, and you're right, that the last two years, we won't even use the word of experiment, a natural experiment, really, like you said, the ripple effect, it's going to tell us a lot about what happens when you shut down or strip that park of so much. Like it, it's not a neutral, you know, there's costs and benefits for all of that um, in the decision making, but let's not lose sight of the real costs and, and what the ask is when we start to to strip that park to to nothing um and 
it's it's profound if i i uh, this isn't well maybe it's a tangent but to your point too there's always been you know you think historically about studies around that about even drug use you know you'll hear studies about animals but they'll they'll use drugs until they die that's how powerful this drug is there's never what's never really talked about is what do you what's the context you need to set up for a living organism to administer a drug until they die. It's not by giving them options. You, they have to strip everything that the only thing you have to do is use this drug. So there's real set of circumstances, again, that doesn't become part of the narrative because we can think we can go right to the molecule and it, it decontextualizes it. And to your point, it's, we we lose a lot if we if we use that as our narrative for understanding. And, and the last two years certainly speaks to that big ways. Absolutely. Well, as we, you know, I say we, I, I think we were very lucky in the state of Florida. We we didn't have anywhere near the experience that other states did, but a lot of people lost their autonomy. You know, which is that that very, I think, healing element. You know, the ability to, as you said, navigate the world as you so please. You know, as far as obviously it's not hurting anyone, um, and a lot of people lost that. So you have the workbook, which I think is the opposite. You you're empowering people. You're giving them autonomy again. So talk to me about you know the workbook itself and the tools that it's offering to parents, to peers, whoever it is that are able to use this to to educate themselves on how to communicate with a loved one, whether they're just, you know, having a bad day or whether they're deep in, in addiction. Yeah, and, and I think the common thread, you know, context and connection, that's, that's the power we want to highlight. So just coming out, you know, sometimes the messaging is science and kindness. We, my colleagues, uh, Carrie Wilkins and Jeff Foote, Nicole Kasanke, they coined that kind of, perspective, which is, you know, um, if we think about connection, we think about human interaction and context, uh, we don't have to leave all that at the door. And there is evidence to suggest it matters. So let's try to uh, change the messaging a little bit. So for families being a huge context in our lives, um, and often major support, instead of let's how can we help you interact as a family member? Um, how to help navigate that. So what the invitation to change, what we have framed it is, you know, you can find these skills in a lot of different areas. So um, we want to help families think about how, how to have conversations that can invite people in. Uh, the first thing families have told us is, you know, the first thing that goes out the window is our communication. We, we, we don't talk with our loved ones anymore, either because we were told we shouldn't, or the way I'm interacting and conversing with you totally shuts you down. And then I get defensive and I shut down. So now we're just two ships in the night passing and it's still. So we wanted to just give real practical nuts and bolts ways of, of how to engage in conversations. Uh, MI uses it for those that were interested in motivational interviewing, which is a way of trying to help counselors learn how to have conversations that that are helpful because that grew out of the idea that uh, when you listen to what was going on in counseling sessions, there were counselors that were talking in ways that actually made the people's change process worse. 
and other counselors were making it better. And and you had that, you know, just in what it's like to experience a system that's operating in a way that's that's not really providing the scaffolding that can be really more impactful here in a, in a helpful way. Um, and all motivational interviewing started with is there are ways you can pull people out. Um, so how do you ask questions that invite people to talk more? Um, that was your question about what well, conversations in my house, you know, growing up, it's like they weren't motivational interviewing question often because parents never believed getting the other's perspective is useful. I'm, I need to tell you what to do. That's my role here, you know, so, and your role is to listen to it. Um, but it strips the curiosity. So back to that first question uh, in our workshops that we would do, and it was eye opening would be working with parents that. First time in their life, they were actually sitting in a room with other parents whose kids were struggling. So just that experience is like, wow, I'm in my community, and this is the first time I've ever sat with other people who are on this road that I'm on. That's connection. So it just speaks to context. Um, and we probably lost, to your point, a lot of that with a lot of the last years that even started stripping that away. Um, but the other question was, have you ever asked your loved one what's useful about their substance use? But no, that thought never, I never thought to ask questions of my loved one. Most of the times I find myself shouting at them and telling them to stop. But it never dawned on me to try to understand it. Um, so people would go home on a Friday night and they'd come back the next day for the workshop and be like, hey, Ken. Um, I asked my son, I asked my daughter, I just said, I don't want you to get defensive, but I'm curious, what do you like about it? And they said, it had two effects. They really got to understand and hear their loved one in a way they never understood. Loved one saying, it's the first time I ever felt comfortable in my skin. It's the first time I felt like I could interact with other people. Um, it takes away my crippling depression that you never knew I had. Um, so the parents actually said they got feedback from their loved one. That was one of the best conversations they've had or thankfulness. Thank you for asking that. Um, and then we had to talk about how guilty parents felt. Because for the last 10 years, they were operating from the last thing you should be doing is talking to this addict and their experience of asking a question, talking. So the, 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 the things we talk about are how to create those questions, how to respond in conversations that can be heated, or how do you respond to things that you hear from your loved one that make you, might make you feel uncomfortable. Um, so the communication strategies in the workbook are all about just practicing that. That's our message. There is, we're not born experts in any of this. Uh, and man, I'm a psychologist and yet I can be at the dinner table and, and I can actually make every mistake in the book <laughs> because I'm human and, you know, parenting's not easy and it's done in the context of all the other demands in life and sometimes in the context with our loved ones really hurting. And that adds just a whole other, another level to this. So we can practice that. And the workbook is like, how do you practice that? How do you try these things out? If we can change conversation and co connection, it opens up doors. Um, change might not happen overnight, but you'll have a different relationship with your loved one. 
um, because that tough love recently has been a lightning rod. So many families come back to us and saying, I tried that. Um, and I lost the relationship with my kid. Or I tried that and my son died six months ago. And I knew I was not the father I really wanted to be. And I can't correct that anymore. Because I was told tough love was the way to go about this. So some people, that works. You know, sometimes there's nothing wrong with setting limits, and there are others. But there's been more stories I hear that. So we want to offer just a different road and, and give people permission to practice. Um, so that's in there. The behavioral skills is Rat Park. How do you reinforce the behaviors you want to grow? If, if, if we were God intenders, and I know the analogy will break down here a little bit, but if my task is to build a varied garden, a portfolio of flowers, and I see weeds growing and they freak me out, I don't like them. But if I inadvertently just focus on the weeds and that's all I try to do is get rid of them and I'm doing nothing else to nourish the other flowers, not going to have such a great garden at the end of the day. And Rat Park has that message that even in the context of behaviors that are hard to see and things you don't want to support, if you step back, there are activities going on that can still be reinforced. And if we can keep them there, that's also helpful for dealing with the behaviors you're hoping are going to decrease. Because we created a context that allowed these other behaviors to strengthen. If I strip it all out, I'm just telling my loved one, you really only got one behavior left. Take it or leave it. And if it's something that's still useful, people will take it. Um, so the, those skills about reinforcement, community enforcement approaches there. And, and the other part is the values part. Um, we want to be able to say, you know what, you're allowed to keep your values even in the context of trying to support a loved one with a substance use disorder, um, there's no mandate for you to be the kind of person you don't want to be. And if you value connection, you can still build a context that can be helpful and keep that. And that's saying it's easy. You stay connected. That means you're going to have uncomfortable feelings and thoughts. Um, and you don't have to make the struggle getting rid of those. So we talk about how do you make room for uncomfortable thoughts? Um, you know, there are things as a father where kid, my kids were struggling and, um, man, I wish they weren't. I wish I had a quick answer or a quick fix for that, um, which if I wanted to stay with them and, and interact and be helpful, that also means at times I was sitting in space where I felt lousy. I didn't feel good. I was anxious. I didn't have a crystal ball. Um but I knew if, if my whole focus was just getting rid of those feelings, then I, I lose sight of, of what they're in the service of, right? Can we repurpose that? Feeling that way was in the service of doing something bigger. Um, and it's that meaningfulness that's key. And I can even, that brings up to our previous conversation earlier, which is meaningfulness in life. As human beings, we can step into a lot of uncomfortable things if it's in the service of something important. 
but it's that being able to connect with that importance. And I think some of that tough not mantra for families was you, you got to disconnect from that importance. It's tough love, but, you know, uh, love with detachment or however we're going to tell you to step away from you. And for some families, that's not what they want to do. And that's okay. Well, that reminds me, um, or it kind of reinforces uh, a concept that I wrote about. I wrote a book a couple of years ago about the one good thing that came out of the pandemic for for me personally. Um, <laughs> but I always struggle with uh, my bucket is overflowing analogy when it came to addiction. Okay, your bucket's overflowing, but how does that explain you know filling the void? So I kind of reversed that analogy again. It was it was something that Johan just mentioned in his book, and I kind of expanded on it. But imagine if you want the bucket to always be full. And so when you're young and healthy and you haven't had you know, horrendous childhood experiences, you know, everything is, is refilling the, the, the bucket. You kind of trip over and you graze your knee a little bit, spells, spells out, and then you see a rabbit and that kind of makes your heart grow and the bucket's full again. Yeah. But then conversely, you take someone who's had some horrific things happen. So now the bucket starts to be, you know, full of holes. You know, more holes appear. You've got, you know, growing up around addiction. You've got some predator in the family, whatever it is. And so that need for that bucket to be full, as you progress through life, you're like, I don't care how I fill it. I just want to fill it. And whatever your thing is that you grab, it might be opiates, it might be gambling, you start filling it. Now, let's say it is alcohol. Well, there's there's a there's a financial cost. There's a social cost if you start acting a certain way towards your peers. You might lose a job. You know all these things. So now you're getting more and more holes appearing in the bucket. You're needing more and more of that stuff, which is you know that kind of downward spiral that we see. Yeah. Conversely, if you are able to find your way to a healing element that you can start filling the bucket with so you happen to stumble across you're a veteran and a group of your friends have started a thing where they go rucking every week and you start doing that with them and now you've got exercise you've got community you've got daylight some of the things that you were filling with alcohol you're now replacing with a healthy mechanism that starts just you know gently patching some of these holes and so I think that's that, that kind of underlines what you said about Rat Park and what you're doing here with with the workbook is you're not going to be able to find any of those things if you're not immersed in them, if you're not given them, you know, as they were taken away the last two years. Conversely, you have a loving household. They create communication. You know, they, they say, Hey, I'm, I've just started this, you know, this, this CrossFit class. Come with me. Come do a class. You know, whatever it is, the, the nine out of the 10 things might not work, but you've been, you've been given all the tools in Rat Park to start putting something healthier in that bucket. Once you start feeling better from that, now you're on an upward spiral where you're going to feel the need less and less. And you're going to be like, wait a second, you know, I don't want to be hungover when I go climbing. We're going to do this, this amazing peak next week. I think I'm just going to, you know, not have anything today. And so that sounds simplistic, but it does kind of, again, I'll illustrate your point. We have to surround them with with options, a toolbox of positing, positive coping mechanisms, for lack of a better word, because if you remove those away and you isolate that individual, as you've said many times in this conversation, you've basically given them one option, which is the very addiction that you're trying to pull them from. Yeah, that's no, so profoundly important. I, I I love that analogy. And, and to your point, right, it, it, it speaks... 
um, to that understanding. And I, I think a challenge is I might not, if I don't talk to you, I'm not going to know what your bucket looks like. I might assume you've got a perfectly fine bucket. There's no holes in it. And all my ways of reacting to you is based on that assumption. I'll never know, like, without some of that trying to understand. Like you said, I think that's that's such an important analogy. You may your bucket may have holes in it and ways in it that are so crucially important for understanding the way you're trying to deal with that and keep that bucket full. Um, and for some reason, that's and I don't know why. People don't want to know. People assume we know what everybody's bucket looks like without even checking or trying to understand or creating the conditions, you know, so. Well, we're such good at, at, you know, so good at masking it as well. I think that's a problem, especially in a lot of the professions that listen, you know, that we have to. You can't pull up on a horrible car wreck and have this look of horror and start crying. You know, you've got you to have this mask and, and get on with it. But the problem is we forget that when that's done and dusted, you know, we have to go back to our vulnerable state. But so many of us have never been, ultimately never been given permission to to have that side of us be in parallel with that flow state, you know, um, profession that we also need when the shit hits the fan. Right. And, and that's, that's the true admiration I have when I, I speak to people with service first respond is um, coming back to what the experiences, the frontline experiences of what, in your line of work, you're asked to do as a human being. I, you're right. There's got to be ways to operate under those circumstances that allows you to step into it and do that heavy lifting that's required in those moments. And um, the vulnerability piece is huge. People don't allow themselves to become vulnerable without the proper signals in the world to say it's worth taking that risk. Um, it's just not going to be something that's going to automatically happen. And, and, and that's through the context of relationships and getting to know people. Then maybe, maybe I'll trust you with a little bit of myself. And if you hold me the way I feel like, okay, that's cool. I might trust you with a little bit more of myself. Um, but I'm not going to throw myself all out there right away. Um, and that makes sense. You know, um, because under certain circumstances, that's not the way or the skill set that's needed. Um, but it can be a leap. Absolutely. Well, I want to hit on one thing you just touched on before we, we close out and make sure everyone knows where to find you and where to find the book. Sure. You touched on uh, when when asking the, the kind of virtual addict about, um, you know, I have crippling anxiety, crippling depression, but you, you didn't realize a real aha moment I had. I have a good friend who was a firefighter. He was a, a Green Beret qualified, I think he was before. Um, and in this conversation, he talked about one of the books that changed his life and his perspective was called, um, oh my goodness, the, uh, I'm forgetting the, the, the actual book title now, but it was about being introvert, introvert's edge. There you go. And I had the author on the show, but 
when the author actually described how you define whether you're an extrovert or an introvert, he said it very simply, it's where you draw your power, you know, and I'm, I'm fine in, in a social setting with a group of people, but I'm the dude that you'll turn around and I've gone home. You know, I'm like, all right, this is it. And that's what I'm, pe- I'm leveling up, you know, on my own or with my dog or, or with my family, you know, in an intimate setting. So I was like, huh, okay, well, I, I'm an introvert then. So then you look at alcohol, you know, the, the one topic that we haven't covered as much, but this is the one that most people are consuming while they're judging their addict <laughs> in their family. Yeah. And you realize that most people suffer from social anxiety and most people actually lean into alcohol they don't go out and be totally fine, stone cold sober, and then happen a drink. A lot of people pregame, they drink before they go out. So I think that's a topic that you don't hear discussed very much, that a lot of us, if we pull back the layers of the onion, will realize that we drink to socialize, we don't socialize to drink. No, it's, it's you know, there's an important point on that. I think, too, one, I, I love the fact acknowledging just the continuum of of where people draw the power. I mean, I like that idea, which is how I'm relating to you, where I feel I am more safe or more in control or can leverage totally. And there's a lot of individual variability in that. And yeah, alcohol, I mean, we haven't spent, but just the use of alcohol. I mean, we could probably spend days talking about all the different layers of of how alcohol has become part of our culture um, in the greater culture here, not for everybody. Obviously there are pockets not, but in the bigger picture it, it, in, and it just highlights the purpose it serves. Um, and probably not unless under extreme conditions, again, like strict prohibition where some of that would be totally unmasked where all of a sudden there's a notice, a noticeable absence of something that used to just be kind of, Everywhere. Part of that social rhythm, you know, mm-hmm. even gas stations, which is which is you know interesting. You know, you can drive to get your alcohol from <laughs> somewhere where you fill up your car. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the accessibility's been it's been wild to watch. Absolutely. Well, I want to be very mindful of your time. So, firstly, where can people listen? Excuse me, people listening, where can they find the book, the Beyond Addiction Workbook for Family and Friends? Um, the workbook. Is- Self is a new Harbinger publication. They have it on their website, newharbinger.com. Uh, also, Amazon's carrying it. Uh, Amazon.com. Yeah, so the workbook's there. And uh, the kind of the group I'm working with, our organization, uh, CMC, uh, called the Foundation for Change. That's the nonprofit part of us getting out in the world and you know we want to empower communities to be able to run their own support groups um it's amazing when again you know we talk to context when parents are or loved ones are able to be in the presence of others and they can think about these in a supportive environment it's impactful so our whole kind of push is to try to just get as much of this out in the world as possible so cmcffc.org is our website and we have all kinds of resources and links for community support groups that have this set of lenses and um, just to help people come into contact with things that they may find useful in, you know, in their home and, and offer a compass and a roadmap for, for navigating, um, 
know, which is challenging situations. You know, I don't want to lose sight of that uh, and, and just have permission to practice and try to tailor this in a way that fits their values and uh, the way they want to be in these these tough times with their loved one. Absolutely. And again, you know, I got, you were kind enough to send me a copy. I think it's a great tool for anyone. They don't have to be dealing with addiction in their family. It can be a number of topics, whether it's your child's sexuality or, you know, simply what career are they hoping to be if they're, you know, graduating from high school in, in 18 months, whatever it is. I think it's, it's a great communication tool. I've had to fumble my way through communication by starting this podcast and I've watched myself evolve, but. This is the one thing that we don't think about. Um, same as running. People assume that we all know how to run. We'll watch a 40-year-old start running again. You'll realize there's more to it than just simply <laughs> running. And I think the same with communication. We're all, you know, we all learn how to speak. But as you mentioned, did our household, did our school setting, did our work environment create you know, give us the set of skills we need for great communication or, which is most likely all of us, is there room for improvement, whether it's dealing with addiction in our family or just in general? Yeah. Yeah. I like that broad perspective. I think, you know, it's just spot on. It's really about human interaction at its core. Um, and, and we can, can practice that in all different contexts. Um, and yeah, I love the idea of practice. Like I said, I, uh, talk about this stuff all the time and I can walk away from conversations even in my old household that I'm like man that could have been so much different I could have done something different there and it's just giving myself permission to to practice and and just every day try it you know and um it it, it can be something we learn that that's the beautiful thing about it absolutely and then to reach out to you if anyone's listening are you on social media or anywhere else on the web um I am probably most contacted through FFC and, uh, and, uh, my email there is, you know, K Carpenter at, uh, cmcffc.org. It's probably the, the, the best way to, to connect with me. And we're on, uh, Facebook and others, our organization. So again, resources for people if they want to check out, uh, if they think any of this stuff could be useful for them. Beautiful. Well, Ken, I want to say thank you so much. Thank you to Karina again, but also I, a lot of these conversations, I don't really know where they're going to go. Um, and you know, I, I delved into your work a little bit. It was a very different perspective. You don't hear a lot of mental health conversations when you're talking about addiction from the outside looking in. And I've talked about on, on this podcast before. The family are our greatest barometer in the first responder profession. If I talk to you know, my crew in a, in a fire station and say, how am I doing? They're like, well, you're fine. We're all doing fine. And then you ask our families, they're like, no, you're an absolute shit show, James. So, you know, it, it's such an important lens. And to have a workbook that allows people to, to, to kind of gain the skills that they would need for communication in all areas, um, it's been an invaluable conversation. So I want to thank you for being so generous with your time today. Oh, well, hey, I appreciate where you took me. <laughs> I really do. It's, it's been just such an awesome experience and, and uh, enjoyed the conversation, James, so much with you. And if it's okay, I picked up some really cool metaphors for the things we're talking about. So uh, um, I'll have some James in my mind when I'm talking about that because there's some beautiful pictures you painted that capture all that as well. So.